And at the same time, the right was starting to signal that the tip of their kind of culture war spear was going to be what we ultimately end up calling, you know, the war on women. The first thing they did when they took over Congress, bill number one was, I was trying to reduce access to birth control. And all we've seen since then is just this rapid, aggressive escalation of attacks on reproductive health and rights, but it's really not limited to that. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Shauna Thomas, is a progressive activist and the founder of Ultraviolet, an online community of over one million women and their allies working to advance gender justice and improve the lives of people impacted by sexism. Shauna has a very interesting story about how she came to be a political entrepreneur and found her own organization and what they are up to currently at Ultraviolet. You'll want to listen. So first, my sponsor, then my interview with Shauna Thomas. All over the world, democracy is on the knife's edge. If the West had stood up for democracy, Russia would not have been able to put tanks there today. The same tanks and the same troops that are threatening the homes of people I love. And at home, we're fighting for the soul of America. We walked up in here amongst hostile people. There's KKK here, there's skinheads here, there's all kinds of that stuff here. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. Don't miss Democracy in Danger, a podcast that's saving government by the people one week at a time. Find us at dindanger.org and wherever you get your audio. Hi, Shauna. Hi, thanks for having me. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Shauna Thomas. I'm the co-founder and executive director of Ultraviolet. We're a community of over a million people in every state and congressional district who take action together to advance gender justice in you know, a real way um, to improve people's everyday lives. We do that through policy advocacy, through corporate accountability campaigns, through public education about you know, how women are faring, for example, in the pandemic and what legislators need to do to, to solve for that crisis. But my very short bio you know, is uh, that I, I did not get into this work as sort of a feminist activist. I came into progressive organizing as an anti-war activist. It was many years ago now, and I was really politicized by um, the George W. Bush's response to 9-11, the Patriot Act, the war in Iraq, and that kind of pushed me to um, want to be a part of a political movement for change. And in it was like really in that experience of working in politics, of working in progressive organizing, where I had both the experience of sexism personally, <laughs> and also kind of witnessed the ways in which even Democrats would throw women under the bus to advance their agenda. It felt like there was a lot of room for both exposing the reality of women's everyday lives and um, developing and advancing an agenda that will liberate all of us, really, by um, you know ensuring women, all women, have what they need to thrive. Makes sense. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Los Angeles. 
California. I've been in D.C., though, for uh, many years. What, what kind of family? Was it a political family? Interestingly, it was a, kind of an entertainment sports family. My stepdad played uh, baseball for 20 years for the Dodgers and Padres, and he was a fairly prominent Republican. I mean, I come from a very far right Republican family. <laughs> what was his name? <laughs> Steve Garvey. Oh, yeah. I remember watching him play as a boy in the 70s, I guess. He was a very good player. Didn't he even flirt with with uh, running for office at one point? He sure did. Yeah. Um, I mean, he was very active in the Republican Party. He stumped for Reagan. You know, it, he was um, everybody in my family always paying very close attention to politics. Um, and I, you know, I, I truly, I, I don't know the point at which I understood that I didn't share the same kind of values or political kind of vision for the future, but it was pretty early. <laughs> it wasn't like George W. Bush came to power and he did something I didn't like and that moved me in another direction. Like, I think I kind of always um, felt like a more community approach um, to change was was uh, better than an individualistic one. That was kind of one pillar <laughs> of difference. They were extremely supportive of me as a woman. Like at no point did I feel like my feminism is not a reaction to their anti-feminism, I guess is what I would say. I sort of had to discover that kind of getting out in the world because I grew up with considerable privilege. I didn't experience the compounding ways in which, you know, uh, class and race and gender can sort of combine to make it extraordinarily difficult for so many women in this country to be and do whatever they want to be or do. And it really had to take kind of getting into real life to understand that better. I noticed that you went to more than one high school. Where and why uh, that path? So I was in high school in Los Angeles. And then I decided that I needed something different and that I needed to go to the East Coast. And I didn't tell my parents. I just applied. <laughs> to a boarding school and I got in and they were surprised, but I think they, you know, I think I made some kind of case that was compelling and they said, yes. <laughs> so that's uh, unusually independent for a high school kid. You must've had strong reason. What were you trying to escape? Yeah. I, I mean, you look, I, this, it connects to this political conversation, right? I, I saw it sort of a different future for myself. I just had like a different vision. I will tell you this, though. I do remember thinking that like the whole East Coast was like New York City. And for me, I had visited New York City, you know, once or twice. And I thought this is the most incredible place in the world. And people talk about more things than the weather and the film that just came out and what they're wearing. Like it felt like very substantive and deep. And I was like very attracted to the intellectual kind of <laughs> rigor of the people who I met there. And um, and I didn't real totally realize that the Northeast wasn't like all New York City. I I may have thought about my school choices differently had I understood that the culture uh, varies widely from like Westchester County, <laughs> you know, and Connecticut and New York City. So I think what I thought I was moving to in terms of culture was a little bit different than what I discovered, but it it was driven by just wanting something different. It wasn't exactly trying to get away from my family. It was more like the whole LA culture felt like it wasn't enough for me. I, I saw that you went to Choate. What was your experience there? Mostly politically. How was that like sending you down the path that you ultimately follow or, or was it? Yeah, I wouldn't say I was the progressive... I am now um, at that time. I mean, I still, I remember politics being a prominent kind of conversation. I remember 
um, taking political science classes. It was a pretty like rigorous environment. Um, people took things like politics and science and English, like and literature, very very seriously, which was an adjustment for me, frankly, <laughs> um, in a good way. It was a pretty diverse school in terms of you know who made up the student population, but it was also pretty. Um, what's the word I want to use? Um, it wasn't like that, that diversity didn't totally feel inclusive, like across. So class across. Yes, exactly. Like it it was, um, it was very easy to sort of silo yourself and only have one type of conversation about politics or about, um, really about anything. And, you know, not have the perspective of people outside of like a very wealthy, very privileged, mostly white set of people. Yeah. Um, you, you also have a, a little bit of a complicated college history with multiple colleges. Can you just talk me through that path? Yeah, I thought I wanted to go back to California. My mom had a kid when I was eight to like graduating from high school and I wanted to be around for that. I just was missing my life there. And so I went back to California and tried two different schools at that point, UCLA and USC. Um, and it, truthfully, and it's like, you know, it, this is just real, even if it's a little embarrassing to say, because I definitely didn't tell anyone this was the reason at the time. But I like fell in love for the first time with somebody. And, you know, it was like everything for me. It was like my whole life. And I really wanted it to be my whole life, right? It felt so much more important. <laughs> it is in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. He was in Colorado um, at CU Boulder. And so I did, I made that age old like error <laughs> of, <laughs> of thinking that, you know, um, if I go, you know, we can be together and it's going to be great. And I did, and it was fine for a while, but of course it didn't last forever um, or even maybe a full whole year after leaving. But I did have a great time there. I'm glad I went there. I had, I'm glad I had that experience. It's a beautiful place. I was a little stunned by how white it is. That was alarming almost. I grew up in Boulder. I, I'm from Boulder myself. Oh, you are? Wait. Yes. I went to Boulder High School and uh, Flatirons Elementary School. And my mom taught at Boulder High School. So I, I know it well. Do you graduate from CU Boulder? Yeah, so that yeah, I finished there. What and, did you um, What did you major in? Political science. Yeah. Was there anything in the studies that you took from those three schools as an undergraduate that was valuable in what you did later on in life? I think so. I think the history of political thought has definitely played a role in how I think about, you know, the world in, in implicit and explicit ways, right? Like they definitely shaped my, my understanding of political theory. In retrospect, I took a lot of philosophy classes and I think that shaped my emphasis, which I think is helpful on logic. <laughs> um, to, you know, logic is like, is a, is an important element of developing theories of change. There's something about studying people who are analytic thinkers that trains you, right? I think that's right. It just, I trained you to think systemically and systematically. I've trained you to think about, you know, what the end game really is. You're, I mean, you, and you can't control all the inputs and you can't control, you know, all of the cultural and political kind of, you know, elements that are going to be inevitably shaping kind of the, the world you're trying to build, the world you're trying to advocate for. 
you need at least a working plausible theory for how you're going to win. <laughs> it's got to be grounded in, in something people can understand. Frankly, the more radical it is, like the, the more you really need to invoke um, you know, historical texts and historical understanding and historical examples of how things can work differently and be successful, you know. Tell me about your your early career after college. What kind of jobs did you take? So 9-11 occurs when I'm in college. That really pushes me, you know, to, to look for opportunities for, frankly, I just, I wanted to see, you know, I didn't identify as a Democrat, um, not because I didn't identify as progressive in any way or liberal in any way. I just didn't see myself as a Democrat. <laughs> but understanding there were sort of two teams at the time and Republicans were pushing, you know, for this war, Democrats seemed like the only way out. And so I looked for opportunities to help Democrats win. That really started with volunteering on John Kerry's um, primary campaign. I didn't know anything, of course. I thought I did. <laughs> um, and I just said, oh, John Kerry seems like he's going to win. So I walked, I actually walked into their office in Utah, in Salt Lake City, because I thought that would be an easier place to get a job. I had family in Utah um, that I could stay with. And they they let me work. And I say let me work because they absolutely believed I was a mole. And like did a whole bunch of research, <laughs> wouldn't let me see anything. And I thought they were just good security measures, seemed wise. I didn't wasn't taking it personally. Um, anyway, they told me later. It was a good experience. It was my first time doing, you know, voter contact work. Um, I went from there to LA for Super Tuesday. And then I didn't know how one would get hired on this campaign. I, you know, I had no contacts to leverage. I had zero in the Democratic Party. None of my friends were thinking about this or working on this. Um, so I was really starting from scratch. And I responded to like a flyer for grassroots fundraising and worked for this company, which you might know, called Grassroots Campaign Solutions. It was sort of built on the um, public interest research group model where you send a whole bunch of kids out basically to, to knock on doors or stand on street corners and raise money for the Sierra Club or various other causes. But this project had been dedicated to raising money for the DNC. I went through that training, ended up being the lead you know, organizer for these folks in Seattle, of all places. I'd never been there. That was kind of an interesting experience. It was, you know, the first time I had been in a position of organizing other people and leading a team and having some very clear kind of, you know, contact goals. And then from there, the same company has kind of been contracted by MoveOn, uh, MoveOn.org to run their first in-person kind of voter mobilization program. So I got hired on by them to be their lead organizer in Cincinnati, Ohio. So I, I ran a team that did uh, voter contact work in Cincinnati to try to help win that state. Um, of course, we didn't. <laughs> um, and that was a devastating, devastating experience. I just really believed we could win. It was fairly close. And it, and that state would have flipped the election. Yep. And um, just seeing those numbers, you know, and seeing how so many of our assumptions were flawed at the end. I had personally witnessed so hundreds, thousands of young people 
politicized, radicalized even by the Bush administration agenda, and then to have nowhere to go, right, after that election. Nobody was contacting us to say, here's what we do next. And so I had a bunch of friends in New York. I didn't want to go back to LA. I kind of flew to New York and started looking around for jobs. And a friend of mine connected me to People for the American Way, which had an office in New York. And I walked in and there happened to be a woman there who who was just starting up an organization that was sort of being sponsored by People for the American Way called Young People For. And her vision was to create an on-ramp for young activists. <laughs> um, to what be was trained. that woman's name? Yada Pang. A former guest on this show, actually, and we talked about this a little oh, bit. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yes, Yada is a visionary. She was an incredible mentor. I learned so much from her. Um, she seemed quite a, an amazing kind of political entrepreneur is what I thought. Incredibly entrepreneurial. <laughs> I think that's the perfect word for her. And it was just so such a relief, frankly, to meet somebody who who saw the problem, understood the and and had an answer. <laughs> here's what we're going to do, or here's a piece of the answer, and here's how we're going to make the case for a investing in youth leadership development in the progressive movement. And by the way, there's this thing called the progressive movement that we're going to help build that was kind of new, and you know, in terms of a national infrastructure. I mean, not new from in American history, but it was getting rebuilt. It was kind of getting rebuilt, right? Um, and it felt like kind of coming in on the ground floor from a youth organizing perspective. It was kind of luck, kind of happenstance. I became her deputy director. I ultimately was the executive director. And I was there for about six years. When Obama won, um, I really felt like the opportunity, f- I had just never been in politics when Democrats were in power. <laughs> and so um, I, you know, was just excited about the potential for passing progressive legislation, right, for changing people's lives. So I moved to D.C. Let me ask you just a, one thing or two about about that time at Young People 4, because later you go on to build your own organization. And I wonder what you learned from Yada or from the experience of building that organization that's worth talking about. I'm trying to think about like in what order I can talk about them because some of them are super practical, which is that you can have a very big vision, you can have like a big plan, but if if you don't have like the systems in place to organize people to achieve them, you've got nothing. You don't just need that because you guaranteed a set of funders, a set of deliverables. You need that because you you may have made some guarantees to a set of stakeholders, but a team needs to be really well managed. It needs to be very transparent. They're just the, the management systems are just inc- incredibly crucial, which I don't think I would have thought about or necessarily understood or realized. And Yada, for her, it was a value. It wasn't a tactic, <laughs> right? For for achieving something. There was a it was a real value placed on strong management systems, making sure people felt like they were doing their best work could do their best work and having all of the necessary systems in place to, you know, to make sure we achieved our goals. So that's one, one big piece. There was also this idea of just movement building that was relatively new to me. You cannot accomplish anything real and significant in a silo. Everybody has a role to play. Having partners who are taking on different pieces of the work and collaborating wherever possible is, you know, it may feel like it slows you down sometimes, but it actually creates far more opportunities for impact long long term. And so just taking the time, right, to build relationships and have strategic conversations like across, across groups working with different constituencies 
you know, was just uh, also a value and a tactic that um, I've carried into my work since. I had liked to think that sort of I, that I understood that being anti-racist was crucial and, and and sort of central to a progressive agenda and progressive vision. But it, I was really at the start of my journey of like an education of sort of really understanding race privilege alongside class privilege. She invested a lot of resources and time into bringing folks into the team who could, you know, ha- help the whole team understand privilege and understand what it means in a real way to be anti-racist, as opposed to just not explicitly or intentionally racist. <laughs> right? It's a very different way of looking at the world and being in the world. And I think I got a real education from her on the necessity of that and taking your ego out, <laughs> right, um, so that you can see that a bigger picture. And understand what your role can be. And especially for white women, I think it's really important that white women are able to model taking on race directly, (laughs) being explicitly anti-racist. And so I I, I really appreciated having the space and that people of color like Yara Ping were willing to invest in me (laughs) to help me get to that place where I could be a real ally and co-conspirator. It it actually sounds like you're running with her ahead of kind of the trend that comes a little later in progressive politics, but that that's excellent. Tell me about your move to DC that you had started to. Yeah, sure. So yeah, the opportunity, Obama had taken over, we, you know, Democrats had taken over um, the House and the Senate and it felt like potentially even, I mean, we hoped not, but potentially a once in generation opportunity for advancing, you know, uh, major structural change. I had my doubts because I didn't feel like that's what Obama had run on. And I believed that if anything significant was going to happen, it was going to be, especially in the context of a big you know, financial crisis, which is what he inherited, it was going to be because there was a group of progressives in Congress who made it so. I had met Darcy Berner, um, who was sort of who was bringing to the Hill um, a strategy that a lot of people had been working on for, you know, decades at that point, this idea that progressives, if they, you know, could become disciplined enough and a big enough kind of caucus in the in Congress that they could create a voting block that could have enough leverage to make legislation more progressive, not that dissimilar from like, you know, uh, how conservative Democrats have been operating for a long time. And so anyway, I was moved to D.C. to be the chief operating officer or chief of staff, one of those two, <laughs> for um, for the Progressive Caucus Policy Center. It's now called the, I think it's now called the Congressional Pro- Progressive Caucus Center. It was the outside organization for the Progressive Caucus, just organizing groups outside to support the work of um, progressive members of Congress who were, you know, taking very bold action and, um in putting pressure on Democratic leadership to do more. It was about a year there. What did you learn during that time? In that role, I created a like an organizing vehicle for everybody working on the public option um, during the healthcare fight. And what I learned is that you really need a strong inside-outside strategy, inside Congress, outside Congress strategy for creating enough momentum to put that type of policy proposal on the table such that leadership actually has to contend with it. But I also learned that um, 
And I think we learned this lesson again, even though the progressive caucus is much stronger now and Pramila Jayapal's leadership is really incredible, I think. Their ability to build and hold power is necessary to for us to win long term, but it is not sufficient. There are a lot of other people who have to come through, <laughs> um, whether that's in the White House or on the Senate side. We can't even get close. I mean, Obama sort of credited at the end of that fight the public option work for helping to get the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, over the finish line because it helped create kind of um, a a a flank um, that made it, frankly, easier for moderate Democrats. Um, right. It makes what passes a compromise instead of something being m- more conservative that would have gone through, perhaps, or not gone through at all. Exactly. I mean, in retrospect, should the flank actually have been Medicare for all so that the compromise could have been public option? You know, I have lots of thoughts about like why that would have been extremely difficult to create enough, you know, energy around at the time. But And it's, and it's hard to run the experiment more than once. It's impossible. It's the same thing I wonder about the Build Back Better and Pramila Jayapal. The strategy didn't work to get that big bill through. It failed on the mansion cinema uh, situation. And it's hard to know whether there was a different strategy that could have done something, whether it was from the White House or from House progressive Democrats. It's frustrating as all get out, but it it's uh, it's not really knowable. It's super frustrating. I mean, my my take is that the Progressive Caucus did everything they needed to do and more. They've never been more coherent and cohesive in terms of their goals and how they were operating. Um, they've gotten they've gotten a ton of stuff passed as a result of that, you know, formation really working pretty well. But on Build Back Better, yeah, of course. They did their part. They played their part. Their power play worked in the sense that they um were able to keep a that full package together for a lot longer than it ever would have otherwise. And to your point, and the point I was making earlier, if you don't have the Senate, if you don't have the Senate in play, then it's ultimately not going to succeed. But you have to start with the House. It was definitely going to fail without the work that they did, basically. Well, and and I think the fight is not over and it's never over. Like we'll we'll see what what comes out of the ashes of that. I mean, there are certain pieces of it that certainly will pass. The climate provisions, I think, you know, are still in the mix. For us, when this is speaking as kind of an ultraviolet, you know, um, care agenda advocate, it was just, it was really heartbreaking to see the care agenda be divorced from infrastructure as if they were unrelated, both on the substance. We think that's a flawed mentality. And as a strategy, I felt very clearly designed to fail. <laughs> yeah. You went to the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, the PCCC. Um, it's an organization that I've been aware of, but really don't know about particularly. I, I don't know the founders. Tell me what you can about that organization, about your role there. So it was a bit of a, it was very related to the work that I was doing at the um the Congressional Progressive Caucus Center. So the Progressive Change Campaign Committee 
um, is an organization that does a whole bunch of stuff that I had not, actually nothing to do with, which is that they identify, recruit, train candidates, um, progressive candidates. And they do it at many levels, not just federal. And I think they've had a lot of success over the years. They have like a pretty large membership, a lot of people who participate in their online-based digital first campaigns. But I think they've been very influential in shaping the way a lot of candidates on the left and the Democratic Party kind of think about their political agenda and, and how they talk about their policy agenda and then what they do once they get into power, whether it's Congress or state houses and senates. Um, what I was doing there was starting a connected 501c4 organization, which is was a lobbying organization. The and Peace the, Street Project? Called the Peace Street Project. And the vision behind that, and it still exists, well, one piece of context background um, for you to have is that um, you may know this, but at the time, the Obama administration was had said that they wouldn't work with, talk to essentially organizations who hired lobbyists. And we knew corporations were going to get around that <laughs> one way or another. And we were very concerned about the, the impact that would have on advocacy organizations. So organizations that had large constituencies, large memberships were now not you know, going to be in a position to shape the legislation that, that is going to impact these folks' lives. That was probably unintentional, but disarming you know, in a way that was not going to be helpful. So um, we started this Peace Street project to essentially be um, the lobbying apparatus for groups that you know, needed to be able to communicate directly with legislators about what their communities need, whether it's healthcare or prescription drugs or environmental staff or reproductive health and rights, and to really try to start, you know, just building a stronger muscles on the left around policy advocacy, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Did you enjoy that work? You know, I did. I thought it was important. It was really important in that moment when um, Democrats had control of Congress and could pass legislation. And I think it is the case that even when Democrats are not in charge, you still need infrastructure in place to continue to build relationships, to continue to try to shape legislation that's moving even if there's no hope for passing <laughs> the thing that, you know, you still need it in place for me personally. Like I felt that once um, Democrats were no longer in charge of Congress, like I, the pathways to change were, there were two things going on for me. The pathways to change were like a little too far out, <laughs> um, too far away. And two, I was having this ongoing conversation with the person who would be my co-founder of Ultraviolet just about the fact that there was a real need for feminist advocacy, um, for a feminist campaigning organization. And that's just where my heart was. And so um, if your next question is, why did you leave? And what did you do next? That, that was the reason. It was like, we were no, like, Democrats were no longer in charge of Congress. So there wasn't a lot I could do in that role, frankly. And there was an opportunity. There were two. So the other thing going on is we watched the Democrats attach the Stupak Amendment, which was an abortion writer, to the Affordable Care Act. Right? They that shouldn't have been necessary to get to pass a Democratic piece of legislation. We watched, you know, Democrats attach abortion writers to the 
to a tax cut bill, like out of nowhere. I mean, this was essentially their mechanism for getting conservative Democrats to vote on stuff was to double underline that women of color and poor women were not going to be able to access abortion. Um, this was, it was like constantly sort of underlining that there was no way the federal government would ever pay for an abortion. And we just thought this is outrageous. And at the same time, the right was starting to signal that the tip of their kind of culture war spear was going to be what we ultimately end up calling, you know, the war on women. The first thing they did when they took over Congress, bill number one was, um, I was trying to reduce access to birth control. And all we've seen since then is just this rapid, aggressive escalation of attacks on reproductive health and rights. But, you know, it's really not limited to that. I mean, the, the, their agenda is extremely broad when it comes to the ways in which they're trying to limit women's ex- economic security and health. Who was this co-founder that you were talking to about it? Sure. So her name is Nita Chaudhry. Um, she was at Move On. Org at the time. She was um, there. I believe her title then was chief campaigns officer. Interestingly, that is what she does at Ultraviolet now. She runs all of their campaigning. We met through the healthcare and public option fight and then, yeah, decided to launch Ultraviolet together. Why'd you call it that? Well, we knew we didn't want an acronym. <laughs> we knew we didn't want to be women for anything because we believed always that sharing in a feminist division and you know believing in a feminist agenda should not just be a woman's job. <laughs> we also you know really wanted to be uh, welcoming to and seen as an ally to the LGBTQ movement. So there was a whole bunch of stuff we knew we didn't want to do. <laughs> On the branding side though, like we purple, we were really like interested in purple has a history in women's suffrage. We were sort of attracted to this idea of like, you know, superpower. And then it was a friend who suggested ultraviolet in a meeting we were having. Um, we sort of thought about it for a while and we said, you know, it's such an interesting idea because a big part of our theory at the time was that like not enough people really understood the depth of the problem around sexism, racism, misogyny. And so, so much of what we were interested in doing was exposing that, was exposing how deep the problem is in every aspect of our lives and every aspect of society. And ultraviolet, of course, is the most uh, powerful light on the spectrum. It exposes things you can't see. So it felt right. It's always a lift to take an idea and turn it into a reality, to make an organization where one didn't exist before. What did it take in your case? Well, it took a lot of people agreeing that there was a gap that, um, in the organizing that needed to be filled. We didn't really want to start a whole new organization when we first had this idea. So we talked to Move On. Credo was a big online-based organization at the time. I'm pretty sure we talked to Democracy for America. What we knew we wanted to build was like a digital first advocacy organization. And our feeling was that the big progressive groups needed to have a gender lens, that they needed to be taking these issues on. That's what we pitched. And they all said, eh, maybe <laughs> eventually, but it sounds like this is actually its own organization and we'll help you launch it. 
So that was compelling when you had, so we had a a bunch of different organizations who said they wanted to help, that they agreed it needed to exist. They weren't ready, couldn't really take it on for a variety of reasons. It was just an idea that had legs really fast, like it just immediately. I mean, you know, you're on a good, you have a good idea when you start talking to people about what's missing and why this thing is needed and you don't even have to get to the end of your pitch. <laughs> um, and people are like, you know, saying, you know, how can I help you? I mean, that that was this that was this situation. And so it kind of snowballed very fast from this idea to an organization that lots of groups were ready to help launch. And then honestly, before we were, even had the website ready, there was such an, a clear moment for launching when the Coleman Foundation decided to defund Planned Parenthood's breast health program in 2012. So we called Move On and we said, like, we think this is a moment. Do you want to launch a campaign? We'll help you. And they said, no, we can't. But if you write a petition, we'll launch it and put a checkbox on it for you and say, we're well, launching a new organization. Do you want to join it? And so we went from nothing to like 200,000 people saying they wanted to be a part of this movement in like 48 hours. That's, I think the power now of the big lists that are out there in the digital world is you can, they can be employed in this way. Unthinkable to have 200,000 members in a non-digital first organization in an earlier era in that kind of time frame, And it feels like there were a lot of examples there was the NAACP, but then there's Color of Change. The new generation of, you know, there was the National Organization for Women Now there and other f- feminist organizations in different categories, NARAL or Emily's List or whatever. But here you found, a, like, we need a modern version, a digital first version of some of what's been there already, but it's going to act online. It's a new world. It needs to know new things about how to operate. Sounds like that's what you're doing. Does that make sense? Exactly. I mean, that's exactly what we were pitching. We've built this new kind of digital organizing, political mobilization infrastructure for every issuing constituency (laughs) on the left, except women, (laughs) except around, you know, around gender justice issues, except around feminist issues. And maybe that's an experiment worth trying. (laughs) So what does that mean to you, gender justice? Hmm. So... Gender justice is sort of a frame that I think is really the future of the feminist movement, or I hope it is, um, in the sense that it's a very holistic um, attempts to be extremely comprehensive in terms of the way it looks at both the harms that pretty much anyone other than like white cis men <laughs> are experiencing in the world and all of the structural solutions we need to pursue to liberate all of us. So there is a major kind of culture change, I think, around gender roles and gender identity. That's one big piece of it. But immigration reform is part of it. Police reform is part of it. As much as maybe even, more, you know, as much as reproductive rights and health and and the more kind of traditional sort of feminist issues that you would think of, like paid sick leave and, you know, childcare, um, that actually all of these things are crucial. It's really about ensuring that we're integrating a gender, a race, um, sexual orientation, um, immigration status, class status, sort of lens on everything and on our analysis about the world and all of the solutions we need to pursue. Starting with the uh, 1848 convention for women's rights, all the way through getting the vote for women and the feminist revolution of the 60s. And 
and onward, women on the Supreme Court. There's been kind of a, a through line of progress in a certain sense. There's also um, really a lot of backlash, particularly right now. When I've talked to a few people recently who have studied sort of the evangelical movement and how it's gone to the right over the last bunch of years or, uh, you know, sort of white Christian America and its pushback against change, it's pretty clear that the that they're kind of radicalizing on that side or going back in time and and that there's a lot of energy in the reaction. How do you read the history of the last 30, 40 years in terms of gender justice? Yeah. I mean, for me, the way I, the way I see it and understand it and the way I experience it is that as women, people of color, LGBTQ folk, as we have built power, <laughs> uh, they have also, like the other side has built as well. It's ratcheting up on both sides. It's sort of ratcheting up on both sides. And I think, look, you wouldn't, there wouldn't be a backlash if there was nothing to, if there's nothing to respond to, right? If we weren't building power and making progress, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be a backlash, right? And I think that it's instead of thinking about it as like an increased radicalization on the right, I think what we're actually seeing is just more honesty and more, more exposure of like what they really have always believed. And the, rationale behind it. And I think they are kind of in a, in a place where they, where they are both reacting to a feeling that they may be losing power. They may be losing the dominant cultural narrative. The Gen Z may be outside their grasp and it's like hard for them. But I also think that what they've learned over the last, you know, couple of decades especially the last 15 years, is that they can have a lot of success weaponizing sexism, misogyny, racism to advance an authoritarian agenda, to advance an oligarchy model for this country that I think would be hard for them to do in, in the absence of that. Um, I mean, they're, they're, they successfully recruited black and brown men to white supremacist groups in the last presidential cycle by recruiting them on the basis that women are terrible. Right? I just think hatred of women really, really works for them. What that tells us is a few things like that the assumptions about or beliefs about what women are women's role in society is actually like much more deeply held. Um, than we may have wanted to believe. <laughs> I certainly when I first started doing this work um, and that the culture change process is going to be much more challenging, that like it is not actually inevitable that women are allowed to be something other than like the definition that the right is comfortable with, right? Which is that you you can have a job if you really want one, <laughs> but you definitely can't make as much money. <laughs> you definitely can't be in charge and you definitely, you know, shouldn't be doing it at the cost of like raising our children, <laughs> right. Or caring for our elders. And you definitely shouldn't expect to get paid for that work or compensated in any way. Right. Like that model they believe is sort of the bedrock of society. Some of them. I mean, one of the things that it seems to me happens is, you know, we have a national election and 
the causes of who wins are complex. They're multivariate. You know, we're going to have 2022. The Democrats are probably going to get shellacked again because of inflation, because of being in power when there's a pandemic and the economy has lots of problems and inequality and all kinds of grievances, a war going on in aggregate. The country looks and says, "Ugh, I don't like it. I'm going to switch. And and a lot of these culture war issues, as they employ them, are they exacerbate that or they're used in one way or another. But the main wave is is very complex. But then they get power and they can make a lot of changes in areas that are way different than what people really voted for, right? They go way past what I think public opinion was calling for if they were calling for change. So much depends on this election in these arenas like gender justice without it even necessarily being fully what you're voting on, unless you find a way to make it so. I just look forward to this election with a lot of trepidation for what the consequences are going to be with the new Congress, right? If it, if it is Republican for issues that you care about that you're fighting for. Is there a way to avoid that sort of seemingly inevitable path that we seem to be moving down? Well, I mean, I think there are a few things. So just on the gender justice, I mean, because we could talk about like what Eric Garland needs to be doing (laughs) to make it clear that undermining democracy, right? Breaking laws are going to have consequences, right? Like that's sort of one category of things. So frustratingly slow, the, the, the possible consequences for a attempted coup or whatever you want to call it, an attempt to, uh, to overturn the results of a fair election. It's absolutely terrifying to me that there are not clear consequences for that yet. I mean, there, there's some consequences for some people who are kind of foot soldiers who, you know, who beat up a policeman on their way in, but not for ringleaders and the organizers and the funders and the president. No, they're sitting senators. <laughs> they're, That's right. Absolutely. You know what I, mean? I mean, who are allowed to vote on the incoming um, Supreme Court or the Supreme Court justice nominee. I mean, I mean, look, I think they, they, they have very clearly told the world who they are and they get the votes, right? And they take back Congress. Nobody should be surprised, including their own voters, right? By what they do. That being said, I think it tells you the depth of like fear and hate that people have for the left on who vote for a lot of these guys. And I and that, of course, is driven by a lot of disinformation, a lot of misinformation content, just just straight up lies right, about what folks on the left stand for, who Joe Biden is and what he's doing, who Pramila Jayapal is and what she stands for. Right. This is not based on like real information (laughs) that is going to impact their life in a real way. It's driven by a false, intentionally misleading narrative that is designed to deceive. And it's been working very, very, very well. But anyway, that being said, I do think that they tend to overplay their hand. I don't think it's the case. I know it's not the case. I mean, there's enough polling in the world to verify it. And I have enough Republican women in my life <laughs> to tell you I know this to be true. That, like nobody thinks they should be overturning Roe. Nobody thinks that they should be putting abortion bans in place, right? Well, some people do. I mean, people who are really pro-life do. 
Oh, that's true. I just mean, I'm sorry. I shouldn't use, I should, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely overstating it. A big majority um, believes that, including on the Republican side, that, that we should be retaining the legal right to have an abortion. But anyway, so I, I do think that they over, they tend to overplay their hand. I think they think they've tapped into something here that they can win on by uh, attacking and threatening, you know, the very lives and livelihoods of trans people. They exploited how frustrated people are with having their kids home and not at school, right? To like try to interject this sort of CRT debate and this the mass debate, but not all of it is completely um, kind of created out of sort of nothing. There has to be something true about people's lived experiences, right? That lead them to buy into these attacks on some level. I do hope, I mean, and I hope the Democrats narrative here is, you know, for this, for this cycle and for 24, that it is entirely designed to, to distract from the fact that what Republicans do in power is yes, they advance their kind of social agenda, but really what they're trying to do is consolidate wealth even more, (laughs) right? They're trying to make you more poor, less healthy, (laughs) less able to build your own power. Do you see any of what progressives have done or stand for as missteps, there is a political liability or there has been made to be a political liability on some of the issues that are most divisive, perhaps, whether or not uh, a trans person can compete in athletics at a high level or whether or not we should defund the police because of way over incarceration problem that we have. There are pieces of what we've tried to get to happen that have been seized upon by the right, usually in a misleading way, but but in a way that feels sometimes like we've lost the the majority support, at least in how it's being phrased. How do you see the politics of those touchier pieces where like a lot of times maybe we're ahead of the country and they need to be brought along right into the progress like the way the the marriage movement was so deft in like its second or third try to bring along the country culturally and and succeed in the courts and in public opinion how do you view that that sort of issue Yes. So it is definitely the case that we, I think as a progressive movement, are impatient on the subject of culture change, right? And policy change, because we're so in touch with the data and we're so in touch with like the reality of people's lives. Like trans people are, they're dying, right? They're committing suicide or they're being murdered. We want to see, right, so desperately for people who are so vulnerable to be protected. And around the, you know, this trans debate, I think, you know, and, and sports, what the right has done, of course, is tap into something that like, you know, people viscerally feel like is problematic, right? Having a trans woman participating in women's sports and how just how unfair that seems on its face. I mean, our, our response to that right now is like, you're talking about just a minuscule number of people. <laughs> the idea that you're going to knock out 
all the great like possible achievements of women athletes in the country because there might be like a trans athlete or two is so preposterous. <laughs> and also, you know, it, it seems to be the case that it's actually more men who feel this is problematic than women who are the directly impacted in this scenario. Um, at least that's what a lot of like the messaging and polling tells us. Anyway, so our, our response is you're being ridiculous, right? Unfortunately, <laughs> it's not meeting people where they are, right? Um, and I think that's your point. What we want to be true because we, you know, we want to meet the needs of people who are so vulnerable now, you know, um, is we're, you know, like you said, we're just oftentimes kind of ahead of the curve. And I think, look, that's true about this conversation that was forced on Katanji Brown Jackson. It was totally inappropriate forum for it. But when, um, you know, Republican Senator said, what is a woman? And Judge Jackson understood two things. One, that, 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 this was not about her and her role on the Supreme Court. And so this was not a question that she should be getting into. And also that it was being intentionally weaponized in some way that was sort of hard to predict in that moment. And she was right, right? And so what they've done with that is feed into this conversation that does tap into some people's fears about what it means um, what gender fluidity means, what it means to be non-binary, right? Like all of these things. And we just, we don't have, I don't think on the left, a very clear or compelling narrative for what it, it means to be a person who may be born with a certain sex, but, you know, is, you know, is permitted to choose for themselves on the gender front. I have received a lot of education on that in the last five years, say, since I started this podcast, my ignorance before was quite substantial. I think it's still in progress that m me understanding the complex biological and social complexities of gender are, are substantial, complicated, and, and like weave in and out of society in lots of ways. And, you know, a lot of my learning has taken place by having a, a, a very intelligent daughter who went through high school and into college, you know, and, and talking to her about it and, and learning from her. Kids now understand things in a way that we don't, right? At least kids in diverse urban schools like she went to, she has lots of friends with complex sexuality, at least compared to what I was aware of growing up, right? And that, that process that I've gone through and that is natural for her is not one that the whole country's gone through, right? It just hasn't. And so it's, it's about education. It's about t taking time. It's about navigating that impatience for justice. And when you get politics into it, sometimes it feels like it's not a nuanced area. If you're talking about an ad, if you're talking about like somebody yelling or in digital politics, you know, passing misinformation around it's fraught. It is fraught. Um, and I I also think that, you know, where the culture change side of the work, right, like the narrative, the public education is really under-resourced, <laughs> is what I would say. There's it's, it's just a lot easier. And they're trying to get rid of, in public schools, like you see what's happening in Florida, they're trying to make sure that there's not education around this. That's the arena that, that, you want the next generation to, to be provided with the 
best information in a public institution about the non-binary nature of life, right? Right, exactly. About sex and gender, the ways in which they are different and, you know, and how to, how to deal with that. You know, I mean, but look, I mean, I think, you know, Reagan really killed sex education. That's had a really big impact. We really didn't understand consent at all until a couple of years ago. The mistrust, right, that has been sown about who gets to be an authority um, on a subject like this. I just think that there's like a huge portion of the population that's been sort of poisoned, right? They they're absolutely will never believe that um, public schools are a forum for their kids to learn. Well, maybe anything ultimately, but right now it's certainly about human relations, certainly not how we think about gender, definitely not how we think about sex, and apparently not how we think about race either. We're polarizing increasingly as a country, and I'm loath to give up on the vast majority of the citizenry. You know, right? I want to believe, and I do believe, that, you know, your family members that are on the right and people like them in rural in rural America, et cetera, that th- those people are educatable, can ultimately make good choices for the country and that we don't have to completely, you know, get into civil war over a lot of these things. We can't do that. That will be worse for everybody. But like, tell me a little bit about what ultraviolet is doing right now. Like, how are you playing a role in this? It's a high stakes fight that we're in on every dimension, really. It's an extremely fragile moment, that's for sure. In part, what we, we want to help people see is the ways in which those, the cultural divisions are cultural, like, or how our opinions, right, about race or gender are being, you know, weaponized to distract us, right, from the aim of undermining American democracy and consolidating wealth. And, you know, the ways in which, you know, women, like women of color in particular, trans folks are just so deeply harmed by that. There are a few like interventions um, that we are trying to make right now. One is with social media and traditional media, where is not sort of an organic kind of accident that misogynist abuse, that racist content is shared at such a greater volume than really anything else. Color change, um, uh, folks like to say, it's hate for profit. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, so anyway, that that's built into the, it's built into their algorithm. They could fix it. They, you know, one of the things that we're, that we are working on is getting all the social media platforms to integrate misogynist abuse as a form of hate speech that they do monitor. So one of the biggest problems with the platforms is that they don't actually follow through on enforcing their own rules. But if they don't have a rule in place, there's nothing to hold them accountable to to begin with. So we've got to start with like, let's just establish that misogynist abuse, right? Like sexual harassment, targeting, you know, women of color leaders with, you know, violent protests and, you know, uh, organizing violence on Facebook, for example, um, that could, you know, result in like an attempted kidnapping in the case of Gretchen Whitmer in in um, Michigan, that this does violate terms of service and that they will put enforcement mechanisms in place. 
that's one piece of work is just establishing that this, you know, that the, that social media platforms um, are going to treat um, misogynist and racist content differently, that they're going to be transparent about how that information flows. Um, and then going to the regulators, going to the FCC, going, you know, to the Obama administration and saying like, you know, these folks are engaging in algorithmic discrimination. They're, they're targeting women with advertising, like that is, um, for example, like resulting in uh, more eating disorders. <laughs> There's so many examples of the ways in which, um, you know, their business model is causing real world harm and that that business model needs to be revised. So anyway, that that's a big kind of piece of work. Um, Shauna, how's that going? Well, I will say that the all of the platforms are in conversation with us. I think they understand the problem. I think there are a lot of people inside some of these institutions. There are some who are who are more willing to take action than others. Reddit moved to add misogyny to their hate speech policy immediately. TikTok um, has done something similar, um, and you know Facebook talks to us a lot. <laughs> um, um, we did, you know, we did try to, we did successfully campaign to get, to force a pause on Instagram kids, which Instagram was prepared to launch this year and they couldn't. Do you try with the rumbles of the world, the, the, you know, the havens for the right? So uh, truthfully, we are aware of what's happening there. They're part of the monitoring, right, that we do. We do not have like an active campaign um, trying to figure out how, you know, to to impact the way that they operate. We have sort of a hard enough time getting folks who say they're on our side, <laughs> um, which is wild. And, you know, and I think ultimately this is like a regulatory question, right? How are we going to change the systems and the rules under which they operate to get, make sure everybody can stay more safe and to preserve our democracy? And and that's that there's there is no world in which the platforms are going to do what they need to do to result in that outcome. So asking asking the platforms to do things is crucial in, now to reduce harm. It's a harm mitigation strategy. <laughs> um, but ultimately, we need structural reform. Um, what else are you up to? So on the reproductive health and rights front, you know, there's never been more attacks um, in terms of like legislative attacks on women's ability to access abortion or if the full suite of reproductive health care that they need in some cases to survive. There are a lot of groups that are working on lawsuits, right, to challenge those cases. There are folks who are working on the political side to get new governors in place and get new AGs in place. And our role is really around corporate accountability. So how are we making it toxic for corporations to align with politicians who are championing this legislation? Because it's it's bad for their customers. It's bad for their employees. It's bad for their image. And ultimately, it could impact their bottom line. The major moves inside almost every major corporation in the United States around corporate social responsibility has meant most of them have statements that say they, you know, that that would lead you to the conclusion if it doesn't explicitly state it, that they support a woman's right to choose and to have an abortion if they need it. And their political giving exposes that they don't mean that, right? That they're they're actively undermining their own value statement with the political giving they're doing. And, you know, coming out of January 6th, it was a real opportunity to expose what was happening there. Because I mean, the same politicians advancing anti-abortion legislations, they that is the Sedition Caucus. They are the exact same people who are supporting a coup, right? Um, there's literally like no daylight <laughs> between those lists. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, January 6th was obviously like just a 
it was a moment in which I think corporations felt more power than they have pretty much on any issue up until that point to say that they would withhold funding to politicians who um, participated in that. And, you know, we were able to start working with a pretty big coalition of organizations that have been doing corporate accountability around political giving across a range of issues to sort of come together and say, we're going to take on a set of targets and in a set of states and try to get some of this very toxic money (laughs) out of these very toxic campaigns. And the goal is not to get them to invest in something different. The goal is not to get them to move their money to Democrats. The goal is to get their money out of politics. But my sense is that there was just a brief pause, mostly, if anything, and that the economic stuff that they care about has trumped some of this political and social toxics. Well, true to late stage capitalism form, <laughs> people do not have enough power <laughs> to influence the way any any decision makers operate. I do think that they some like I do think AT and T believes they've taken you know a bit of a PR hit for you know not just um, you know the funding of the anti-abortion legislators, but also being essentially the the most important, largest funder of the One American News Network. Um, and, you know, and then backtracking on their promises around January 6th all kind of culminated in a, a lot of public pressure. I mean, we had thousands of ultraviolet members going to AT&T retail stores, handing them letters. And, it, you know, the day after that happened, you know, AT&T called us and said, well, we have a whole team compiled... <laughs> figure out what to do here. And we were like, we don't, you don't need a whole team. (laughs) It's very simple. (laughs) It's just sort of another example, the ways in which corporations have just far too much power and we have far too few levers of accountability. I know that there are corporations who have made the decision, you know, not to put money in some campaigns versus others. Like I, I do think it's having an impact to some degree on political giving, but I also think it's a case that there's a lot of space. There's a lot of room for more investment in this work because I think to the extent that um, corporations alongside the politicians themselves are not held accountable for their complicity in what happened on January 6th or what's going to happen in the aftermath of the Supreme Court decision around Roe, you know, we are just going to continue to see an escalated erosion of our democracy and basic rights. Very cheerful to hear. (laughs) Is there a question I haven't asked you that you wish I had? No, I mean, we've talked about so much stuff I've never talked about publicly ever in my life before. So I'm trying to think. Um, (laughs) Everything from my like childhood (laughs) to my (laughs) political theory around feminism. I don't know if it's your audience would be interested in this, but like what happened, you know, what happens in the aftermath of that Supreme Court decision? Like, what are we doing? What are we preparing for? What are you preparing for? I mean, it seems like even in the run up to it, the states controlled by Republicans are already moving. What are you expecting and what are you trying to do? Yeah. I mean, look, there's there are many, many states that are already moving and will move even faster and more aggressively to either ban or significantly limit anybody's um, ability to access abortion if they need it. Um, so first and foremost, I think for, for not just us, but, you know, all all of the organizations that we work with, the question is like, how, how are we going to get information and services to the people who need them? What kinds of health services you can access? Where? How can we help you get there? Right? So so first is just getting people who need it, the things that they need, right? Healthcare. 
The second is the concern around criminalization of seeking healthcare, reproductive healthcare. So how are we supporting people who are going to be prosecuted, who are going to be targeted by law enforcement and by state governments? So that's a whole other layer of support that's going to be needed in a lot of states. We're already seeing it in Texas, of course. But then politically, I mean, there's what you can do, what you have available to do is it's going to be really dependent on where you live. And you know, we have been so focused for so long on the national agenda on federal strategies because what's happening at the state level is so aggressive and so challenging and frankly, so overwhelming in so many places. We've been really focused on getting the Women's Health Protection Act passed, getting the EACH Act passed, stuff that can try to enshrine Roe into federal law and make it harder for states to move on this. But the truth is, we have to pass that legislation and we also need to do things like expand the Supreme Court so that we can get more seats and get get more people on the court to protect to protect that right once it does pass out of federal, federal legislation. So what's happening at the federal level is is not going to happen in the time that we need it. And there are things that people are going to need to do at the state level. And frankly, we need to be working at both levels all the time. And so what I think you're going to see in the aftermath of that, really in the lead up to that, is um, some clearinghouse kind of uh, resources for people online where you can look at your state, you can look at what's pending, what's coming down the pike, and what you personally can do beyond just donating. <laughs> Obviously, it's that's helpful and we need people to do that. But I think what people also really want to be doing right now is to know, like, who do I need to call? What do I need to be most concerned with in places like California, right? Or New York, where you're going to be receiving an influx of people coming from out of state. What kind of resources do you need in place to support them? And what kind of legislation do you need to help pass to make sure that abortion rights are expanded, that access is expanded? What is available for you to do is really going to vary by state. And and that's really where we need to focus, I think, right now, um, because the federal solutions are not solutions. <laughs> I wonder how much that will play into the midterm elections. Seems like has the potential to be explosive. I read a poll recently about a slim majority supports a, um, like I forget what the time period was, but a ban within the first X number of weeks. It's going to be tricky to make it what it really is. I mean, here's the truth is we shouldn't be talking about weeks. The government does not have a role here. They should not have a say in when women can access the healthcare that they need. Once we start talking about weeks or cutoffs or moments of viability or what's what what works, you know, for one religion versus another, because for example, for Jews, like the it's it's a very different conversation than it is for Christians. And there's right now the Christian model is the one that a lot of this legislation is based on. Once you start talking about weeks, it gets very complicated and you tap into something very real for people, which is like, oh, I, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if somebody should be able to have an abortion. Like there's been a very convincing kind of, uh, narrative out there that A, people actually seek abortions that late in pregnancy, which they don't, and that this is, and essentially this is a significant problem that needs a legislative solution, which it doesn't. I think between now and the, you know, and that decision, part of our the conversation has to be about the fact that there shouldn't be any government intervention in this conversation at all. It should be between a woman and her doctor, and that's it, period. But, um, you know, I just I think it is the case that the right has made a lot of headway on a lot of um, these bans at certain weeks and, um, you know, reminding those people <laughs> uh, 
And I think the, you know, the folks running in those states and some of those districts where they're the most vulnerable to that, um, to that conversation is to remind them that, you know, what the actual aim here is very clear. They've been very transparent. The aim here is to make abortion illegal. This is about creating a standard that banning abortion at any time is acceptable so that they can ban abortion at, at, you know, at all times. That is what this is about. There are people who are going to believe that because they're reading and watching what the right's been doing over the last few years. And there are people who are not, right? But the polling right now suggests to us that this is not a winning issue for them. And that's been true the last few cycles. There are places where, you know, they really wanted to make abortion kind of center of the fight. And when they did, it worked against them. So one can hope. It's really been an honor to talk to you. I think you've been incredibly generous with your time and thoughts. Is there anything else you want to say? Um, I am totally honored to be here. I'm grateful that you were interested in this range of conversation. I would say like for anybody who's interested in learning more, we are ultraviolet.org is sort of where to go. Um, feministnet.com is where to go for like disinformation specific kind of content, gender disinformation and reproreceipts.com is a good place to go if you want to get involved in, um, political giving accountability for corporations. Well, appreciate your work and your time. Thanks. That was Shauna Thomas, founder of Ultraviolet. Shauna is at weareultraviolet.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.